If we just go rescue the slave, that's ending slavery for that individual. But what is left is a brothel that now has a vacancy for one person. And so then that trafficker will then go and traffic someone else. So if we end slavery for that one person, did we really end slavery in that community? Greetings and salutations, my friends. I hope things are going swimmingly for you. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is episode 49 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My guest this week is Richard Lee. Richard is the Director of Church Mobilization at IJM, that is the International Justice Mission. IJM is unique in their approach to eradicating human trafficking. They don't aim to simply free the slave, their aim is to also convict the slave owner, the trafficker, so they can never enslave anyone else again. And this is unique, I want to point this out, it's unique among the work being done in human trafficking. Most aim at just freeing the slave, which is great work and it's much needed work. There are tens of millions of slaves all over the world being trafficked and used and abused. But I love that IGM goes one step further and says, if that slave owner gets a slave taken away from them, they will fill that spot very, very soon with someone else. They do this by partnering with governments and law enforcement all over the world. They have helped free 40,000 plus people from oppression, and they've seen over 1,300 convictions of human traffickers. Truly amazing work. And I've been a longtime fan of IJM, so it was an absolute honor to talk with Richard about his life, the ways he gives a damn, the impact IJM is having, and about his recent TEDx talk called Slavery Still Exists, Here's How to End It. You can find a link to that TEDx talk in the show notes for this episode found at shownotes.letsgiveadam.com. Again, that's shownotes.letsgiveadam.com. I'm super pumped for you to hear our conversation, so I'm going to shut up right now. Let's get right into it. Here we go. Richard, how are you? I'm good, Nick. Good to see you. Good to be on the show. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have this conversation. It's been a long time coming. We tried to make it happen in person my last visit to uh, New York, and it's right. it's been a long time coming. So I'm excited to finally do it remotely, but we're doing it. Uh, I'm really excited to, for people to hear your story and hear your heart, and um, this is going to be super helpful for so many. So let's jump right in. Um, you're on the show because you're a, as far as I can tell, and we're going to hear more of your story, but as far as I can tell, you have given a damn for a long time. And so, and currently you serve with International Justice Mission. So we will get to all that. But for the sake of just getting some context about who you are, why you are the way you are, what made you that way, give us some of your backstory. Go back as far as you want to. Give us some of the who's, the when's, and the what's of your story. That'll give us some framework for why you are the way you are and who you are today. Well, I appreciate the time and the question. Uh, you know, when I think about tracing back who I am today, um, as far back as, you know, the roots of it, you, I think you have to go back to like literally my birth. Um, uh, my parents immigrated to this country as, uh, from Korea, uh, South Korea. And so as immigrants, they grew up in a, in a, in a second culture. They grew up, you know, not really knowing the language, not knowing the culture. And so for me growing up as a minority in this country, uh, in the eighties and seventies, it forced me to confront the issues of inequality. It forced me to 
to deal with the issues of, of balance and of equity and, and all of those different things. I was uh, raised in English in my home. So my parents immigrated from Korea. And even though their first language is Korean, in order for them to learn the language and in order for us, their children, to be proficient in the language, we spoke English only in the home, which is actually rare for immigrant families. So I actually don't speak Korean. I speak Spanish, but I don't speak Korean. Uh, and my parents regret that to this day. But growing up, we grew, we spoke English in the house. And so understanding that that, that I had a, a profound uh, sort of language gap with my parents. My parents speak very good English, but there's a cultural gap um, that happened uh, that was in the home. And so recognizing and balancing all of those different things um, and understanding just my racial place in society, in my town, in my school, in my neighborhood, forced me to really from a young age, think about all these sorts of different, you know, now I would put the issue that I would put the label of justice on it. But really, from a young age, it was it was in front of my face from very, for the whole time. Were there any besides your parents? uh, Were there any people or circumstances that happened to you in your you know, growing up years and your coming up years that uh, taught you to look, look and see things that way? Or was it more just your family and your uh, cultural background and things that they put you in front of? When you look at immigrant families, um, oftentimes people who have successful white collar professional careers in a certain country, the country where they're from, will come to America and will end up working you know, totally different job uh, and a different sort of entry point and everything like that, just because of the lack of uh, language or lack of experience or the lack of acceptability in this culture, uh, in this in in this country. Now, my father actually went to medical school here uh, in the states, which is really rare for Korean immigrants. Many of them started their career in Korea, then moved to America. My dad actually went to medical school here, so he was fortunate to have that career here in America. But a lot of my friends that were of immigrant parents, I saw a lot of that imbalance. And I recognized sort of that issue of how different people are treated based upon what they do and what their what the people's perception of them is. Even though in a previous country, they had professional careers and they would have been looked at completely different. So just understanding that discrepancy you know, with a lot of my friends, I recognize, oh, wow, this is, that is something, there's something to that. Um, and so that just kind of in, helped inform some of my, my thoughts and my approaches. Uh, and then also, you know, growing up in the church, uh, you know, growing up in a youth group, um, and just the way that you approach people within the youth group, you know, you take what the Bible says about welcoming the stranger, about uh, accepting and loving all people, and then you look at the youth group in a middle as a middle schooler and you realize that this person, you know, you don't want to be friends with them. You don't like them. You don't, you know, everything in your sort of, you know, uh, adolescent uh, immaturity is telling you not to like this person, to make fun of this person. But the Bible is telling you, your God is telling you to accept and love this person. So you deal with those sorts of issues. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. And so you, you said, you're, let's go back just a couple minutes. What did your dad do career-wise before coming here? Well, so he, he grew up uh, in Korea and right. went to university there. And then for his uh, medical school, he stayed in Korea. But for his medical residency, he actually applied 
to uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. So he did his medical residency here and then established a uh, practice in, in midtown Manhattan for, you know, 40 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say that is very rare to like, to not have that background and then come here and start that because a lot of times immigrants and refugees and the like, they, you know, have to take on different types of careers, different type of work, uh, because of the language barrier or because like, how are they actually going to climb the ladder that way? So it seems like he had some of the university training before and then came over here and had, I guess that brought some credibility with it, but still hard. I mean, still admirable that he was able to pull that off, not having come here with that profession already started. Yeah, absolutely. I have a semblance of understanding of what that challenges must have been, but I'm sure I actually have no idea what he went through. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he, he your, both your parents have amazing stories, incredible stories of just resilience and persistence, just transitioning cultures like that. It must have been insane. Um, so you've, you've mentioned uh, Massachusetts and New York so far. So has all your life been up in the Northeast? Yeah. So I actually grew up in New Jersey. Um, and so my dad was commuting into the city, but I grew up in New Jersey, you know, suburban middle-class, upper middle-class New Jersey suburb, uh, all my life. Um, and then I, after college, I basically moved around, uh, a bit, uh, went to uh, college in New York city at Columbia and then, uh, did some seminary at Dallas and in Massachusetts. Um, and then also worked at a church in Atlanta during that time as well. So take me on the journey toward how you ended up at IJM. It looks like you've been, again, that you've been involved in, you know, serving other people in various ways for years now. So how did that happen from, I mean, when did that transition in your life start happening where you decided I want to give my time, energy, resources to helping people in a very tangible way? When did, take us through that journey. When I graduated from college, I ended up going into seminary uh, to train to be a pastor. Um, and during that time, I was involved in different uh, campus ministries, church ministries. I ended up sort of entering into the camp, the church ministry uh, in Atlanta and then also in uh, Massachusetts. When I graduated seminary, I had my own church in New Jersey where I was working. And I quickly began to realize that one of the best ways that I could serve my church in this, again, upper middle class, uh, suburban, culture, one of the best ways that I can serve them other than just teaching them the Bible is to teach them how to view the world through the biblical lens. And so what we would do is every week, every Sunday during one of our prayers, I would always take an issue from the news. I would always take an issue that was going on in the world. So we would pray for tornadoes that hit uh, in the United States or cyclones that would hit in Southeast Asia or, um, you know, political uprisings that are happening or, you know, people who are being uh, kidnapped in North Korea. And so we would spend just maybe, maybe a, a minute or two just in prayer, but I would give them just about a 30 second introduction to this issue. And my hope was that people would then begin to see the news articles on their Facebook feeds or in the news. Um, and they would start seeing it, um, and engaging with it more. And so it would expand their worldview. And so the way that I saw it was sort of working in the church and trying to bend the church towards these issues of justice. And the interesting thing is I actually see the work that I do now for International Justice Mission as actually the same work. I'm trying to bend the church towards issues of justice, but I'm just doing it from the other side. I'm doing it 
for this issue um, of slavery and trafficking uh, and oppression and violence. And I'm trying to bring the church closer to this issue and awaken the church's uh, worldview uh, to that issue, but I'm doing it from the other side. I think that was very perceptive and wise of you to do, you know, when you had people that you were leading, that you would kind of bring in a current event that was happening and try to connect that to their faith. Because I think we're seeing that in a real tangible way right now, where people are, are having a hard time with certain parts of Christianity, because they're seeing like this way that that the Bible and Jesus is calling people to live. And then they're seeing them make decisions and support people in the world politically and so societally that don't match up at all. And they're, they're wondering like, how can you, but you say you believe this, but you're supporting that. And so what you did in, in a real tangible way was help people connect their faith with what was happening all around them, which is again, one of the gripes that people have with Christians is that like, how do you, it seems like you so easily separate what you believe with what you do or what you support or what you put your your weight behind. So that seems very wise that you did that. Were people helped by that? Were people encouraged by that? And did you see any fruit come out of that? Like, were people genuinely like, oh, this my faith does connect with the things happening around me? Anybody who is in pastoral ministry knows that it can be very difficult to sort of measure uh, impact of you know individual sure. sort of initiatives. And so, uh, on one hand, who knows? Um, but I would like to think so. I would like to think um, that you know people had eyes towards people around them more. Um, in our church, in particular, we we sort of had an outreach with the town that we were in. Um, and so we had a lot of people that were just walking in from the community. We had people that were, um, on assisted living. We had homeless people. We had people of all sorts of socioeconomic, uh, backgrounds. Um, we had people of different races and different ages, different generations. And so really it was trying to take the, the, the picture of who is our brother, who is our sister and broaden it to not just the people in our race or not just in our socioeconomics or just in our age group, but much broader than that. And then extending further and saying, well, what about the person who's being oppressed in Myanmar? Who's, what about the person who's being trafficked in Cambodia? What about those people that are being you know, oppressed in the inner cities uh, here in America? And so broadening sort of our understanding of who is our brother, who's our sister. No, that's super helpful. Let's talk about real quickly your transition from working in a church, right, uh, to working with IJM. Because, you know, I'm wondering what that was all about. One of the first interviews that I did on this podcast was with my friend Bucky Buckstabber in Portland, Oregon. He was a pastor of a very large church there and eventually left all of that to help people full time by doing something that they love doing. So Bucky also helps uh, women and children that are coming out of human trafficking and sex trafficking by creating safe homes for them all over the world. And he does that through fly fishing. One of the things he loved doing the most was fly fishing. And so he created this whole organization, Fly Fishing Collaborative. Was that your story that you would be more useful and that your desires and passions would be fulfilled better by doing it this way? Or what, what was that transition like out of being a pastor to this work? I would love to say that I have complete control over my career and, <laughs> and say, I, I will be more useful over here. And so I will move over here and you will pay me to do this job. Um, you know, but not everybody's 
uh, career path is like that. For me, I think I was fortunate enough to have people um, that are dear friends of mine that work within the organization that actually worked for IJM and, and, and helped me understand more about IJM. And so what ended up happening is one of them reached out to me and let me know about a position that was opening up. And he said, hey, I think you'd be really good for this. Um, and at first point, I was saying, well, I'm a pastor. I work in churches. That's what I do. I'm not going to work for an organization. And then I sort of did some more research. I asked a bunch of different friends that had made the transition from pastoral ministry to organizations or to businesses or to the, to the marketplace. And so I recognized, oh, this is something that that people do. This is something that is possible. And so I really began to, to consider it. And what ended up happening, I think, was as I learned more about what IJM does, and as I learned more about the work that IJM is doing, I just, I became drawn to it. And I think that there was a sense in which there are many, many, many churches, and there are many, many, many pastors and very, very capable pastors um, but there aren't nearly as many organizations like IJM, um, and IJM is doing such a compelling work in such a compelling industry in with, with such, in such a compelling way that I realized I kind of want to just get a seat on the bus and see where we go. So that's really what, what drove me to the decision. Okay. So you've kind of alluded a little bit to what IJM does, please, again, a lot of people that are listening might know what IJM is all about. I've known about IJM for years. I love it. I support it. But what is IJM? What's the mission? What's the vision? What is being accomplished? What do you want to accomplish? So International Justice Mission is a human rights organization that works on the front lines of ending slavery and sex trafficking throughout the developing world. We work in nearly 20 communities partnering with the government. So we partner with police and aftercare and social services and the courts and lawyers. And we basically are trying to build up the justice system for them to be able to do the work of ending slavery, of arresting slave owners, of arresting traffickers to put an end to this uh, oppression in their communities, whether that is boys on a fishing lake in Ghana or um, families in factories in India, or girls being trafficked in a sex trafficking uh, industry in the Dominican Republic, or little children being exploited in front of webcams in the Philippines. Um, the problem is massive. It is um, destructive. And what we do is we work in these communities to try and build up uh, work with the justice systems and build them up to the point of being able to uh, put an end to this oppression. When you say community, do you mean country, city, part of a country? What what do, we, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, so we have field offices. We'll open up a field office in a city or in a region within a country, but oftentimes the, you know, operation that we do may be, you know, a few hours away um, from that city, um, but we sort of have a, a field office there in that region uh, to work within the court systems, within the police districts, um, so that we can create partnerships with the government. Yeah, so a difference between what many other organizations are doing and what you all are doing, and I value, I think all of it's very valuable, but you all, I think the secret sauce is what you just said, is that you're trying to build partnerships with the police, with the government, 
to make this happen, right? You guys aren't trying to be lone rangers, trying to build a, you know, covert operation where you're going to go in and, you know, pull people out uh, Liam Neeson style. Yeah, you're trying to, in, in a very overt, direct uh, way, trying to build relationships with those that can actually do something about it, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that we learned early on in the work was if we just go rescue the slave, that's ending slavery for that individual. And so when we pull someone out of slavery, we're ending slavery for that individual. But what, what is left is a brothel that now has a, a vacancy for one person. And so then that trafficker will then go and traffic someone else. So if we end slavery for that one person, did we really end slavery in that community? So we recognize early on that it's not just enough to rescue the slave, but for slavery to end, you have to arrest the slave owner. And so we have to go after the person who's creating the need uh, or who's creating the supply of these slaves. In 2011, in Chennai, India, we had a rescue operation where we went to a brick factory and found out that the brick factory owner was actually a slave owner. And so we went and we went with police on this rescue operation, and we actually rescued 512 people in, in one operation. He had been using 512 slaves in his factory. Now, what ended up happening was that the, the government at the time wasn't fully set on punishing the acts of slavery. So what ended up happening is that the slave owner, because he was a man of considerable wealth and influence, didn't spend a day in jail. Now, five years later, 2016, we received another phone call from someone in Chennai about the same factory with the same owner. And so when we show up again with the police, we found out that the same factory had been operating with the same owner. And this time we freed 564 slaves. So you think in five years, this slave owner was able to replenish every single one of those slaves that we set free five years earlier, and then some. And we realize, well, we're not actually ending slavery in this community. What we're doing is we're, we're kicking the can down the field, right? Down the street. So what we wanted to do is we want to work with governments to put that one slave owner away. Because that slave owner, if he goes to jail, if he gets arrested, then that's 500 people that never would have needed rescue in the first place. Yeah. So if we look at the numbers, then it's very impressive and awesome that 40,000 plus people have been, you know, relieved from oppression, right? But the more important, I think the more like monumental numbers are that 46,000 officers and officials have been trained to see these things and assist with these things and 1,300 convictions, right? That seems like if we go by what you're talking about, the importance of actually arresting the slave owner, that's the big number, right? 1,300 less evildoers out there trying to make slaves out of men and women and boys and girls. Absolutely. Yeah, that's powerful. Because what ends up happening is that the reason why slave owners are using slaves, the reason why brothel owners are using underage girls is because there's no threat of prosecution. Right. So once one slave owner starts going to jail, once one brothel owner gets, uh, you know, once one brothel gets shut down because the owner's sitting in jail, the rest of them look around and say, well, I, I don't want to go to jail. I'm not willing to go to jail for this. I'm only doing this because there's no threat for me to go to jail. And so then they end up stopping 
their use of slaves and their use of underage girls in the sex industry. And so then it, it ends up being something that ends up being an exponential opportunity for the government to actually end slavery in their country. 100%. What's your specific role on the IJM team? Like, what do you, what do, you do on a daily basis? So as a church mobilization director, I will go and create partnerships uh, with churches, uh, with pastors, um, as with faith communities, because what we recognize is that in these churches, there are a gathering of people who have like-minded, passionate hearts for other people. And so we want to be able to spread the message of justice and spread the message and the work of IJM. Um, so part of that is uh, working and creating partnerships, but then also some of it is is going around and speaking and and doing podcasts and and preaching in churches and speaking at conferences and those sorts of things. Okay. So you seem like a very well put together guy, good looking dude, come from good stock. I mean, hardworking parents, doctors, why do you give a damn in this way? Right? Like I'm always curious, like get down to like the real, the real like motive. Yeah. The motivating factors for why people give a damn in the way that they do, because you could likely be doing a number of other things, probably making more money, creating a different life entirely. So why? Give us some insight into the why you're doing what you do. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that I'm good looking. Oh, 100%. Everybody, go look up Richard Lee. Good looking dude. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send this to my mother now. Um, <laughs> That's right. I don't think you can be a thoughtful human being without thinking about the things that you have been given juxtaposed to the people that you see around you or that you see in the news or that you see in the world that simply haven't been given those things. I made no choice to be born to a, uh, you know, to be a son of a doctor. I made no decision to be born in New Jersey in, in the Northeast, in a upper middle class suburb of the United States. I had no decision making ability in any of that. Yet that was all given to me. And yet there are people that haven't been able to have the same sort of uh, benefits and the same sort of um, opportunities available to them throughout the world through no choice of their own. So how could I not think about how will I use the things that I have been given to give back and to help those that have never were never given that opportunity in the first place. I think just as a human being, uh, we need to face that question. I think, you know, when you look at society today, when you look at the news feeds, right? I mean, it's all like, oh, it's us versus them. It's, it's all this tribalistic, um, you know, beating of drums. And I think if we just stopped and took a look at the other side and recognized, well, maybe they're speaking from a, a place of pain, a place of, of lack, a place of you know, a bad experience or bad conversations or oppression or violence, and step out of ourselves and out of our position and get onto the other side and at least engage with the conversation of where the other people are coming from. So that's basically what it was. I think for me, I just looked around and saw all different sorts of opportunities given to all sorts of different people for no particular reason. And so for me, I think as my faith and I think just my standing as a human being just pointed me in that direction to give a damn. 
I've heard 400 trillion to one are the odds of us actually being here, right? Being born the way that we were, where we were, you know, our parents could have, you know, had sex five minutes earlier, five minutes later, anything could happen, right? 400 trillion to one are the odds of us being here and we're here and we have the amazing privilege of being born in this country in the ways that we did, or you, you, you came over here, but you know, it's still just fascinating how our lives line up and the blessings that we're given and the privilege that we have. And yet so many people in that same scenario, in that same environment, choose to live, most people choose to live, you know, very comfortable, self-centered lives with so much need going on around us. So many things, you know, not everybody is going to join IJM. Not everybody's going to join a nonprofit or, you know, start an organization or start a, you know, a foundation or whatever, but, or a podcast or a podcast, but it is absolutely necessary for each person, which I think is your point. It's absolutely necessary for each one of us to figure out what our place is, right? What's the way for us to give a damn, right? Because all of us have benefits and privileges that someone around us doesn't have, right? Absolutely. I think we can become so intimidated um, with the message of, you know, this idea of giving a damn, right? We all, we all probably follow the same people on Twitter. We watch the same videos on YouTube and we're inspired by the same speakers and the same lives and the same people. But the reality is every single one of those people, including every one of your listeners, are all given an opportunity every single day to take one step outward, right? And so, you know, people ask me all the time, churches and, and Christians and, and, you know, pastors, they, they say, where do we start? And I say, all you have to do is take one intentional step outward because then you look outside of where your family is, where your friends are, where your community is. You take one step outward And I'm not saying you have to sell your house and quit your job and move overseas. I mean, you can do that, but not everybody's going to do that. But what everyone can do every single day is take one step outward. Just take a moment to learn the name of your waitress that looks miserable serving you coffee, right? And think about that person who is probably the same age as you and is maybe grew up in the same town as you, but is actually in a completely different life stage than you. And so just take a moment to take a step outward. And if you do that every single day, then what ends up happening is you begin to broaden your circle and you're able to give a damn to more and more people in more and more different contexts. And that spreads. Yeah, that's super huge. Uh, Mel Robbins Uh, one of my favorite authors, speakers, she's amazing. She said, here's what it takes to get what you want. Not big, scary leaps once a year. It takes small but irritating moves every single day. And I love the message behind it because so many people get overwhelmed with these big audacious goals or these big audacious problems, right? You know, human trafficking, tens of millions of people caught up in it across the world and a mile from where we're standing right now. Like it's happening everywhere. How do we even begin to address that? And you just gave, you and Mel Robbins just gave the key to that is one one foot in front of the other. Little steps, little, the way she says it, small but irritating moves every single day. It's not, you're not gonna get all the way 
uh, you know, to your end goal right away. I mean, sex trafficking, human trafficking doesn't end tomorrow, might be 10, 20, 50. And really the reality is it's never going to truly end because there are evildoers and evil people everywhere. And as soon as it gets completely eradicated, someone will begin again, right? So, but just making those small moves every single day toward what you're passionate about, the problem you want to address, the thing you want to take care of, the people you want to love well. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the things is there's so much just rhetoric going on right now. And I bet every single person that's listening has been in a conversation in the last week or two that's made you uncomfortable. Somebody has said something that you thought was a little bit over the line or maybe a little inappropriate. Um, You know, you think of the Me Too campaign and the Time's Up uh, campaign uh, of sexual assault, right? I mean, there are so many conversations that I've been in part of as a man. And had an opportunity to say, hey, that's not cool, right? And so whether it's a racial conversation or a gender conversation or, uh, you know, a, just any sort of conversation, there's an opportunity for us to be able to just take a small stand, a small step, even through our words, just to object in a group or with a person just to say, hey, that's not cool, um, allows us to take some ground back in the narrative that's going on in our society. I love that. We kind of skipped around there, but I'm glad we landed here right now. While we're here in this part of the conversation, the people listening to this podcast, they are already giving a damn. They are potentially damn givers in the future. Based on the things you've experienced, both as a, as a man, as a human, as a pastor, and now as in the leadership of International Justice Mission, what advice do you have for those listening, people that want to give a damn, besides the small irritating moves that we just talked about one foot in front of the other, anything else from your learnings, from your experience that you would like to share with those listening? Yeah, I would say, I think apart from sort of the two things I mentioned, right? Take a step outward and, you know, have an opportunity to, to take back some of the narrative. Yeah. I think that there's just something in learning and growing in your understanding of these issues Um, and so surround yourself with people that care about these issues, find places and avenues of, of news, um, where you're going to learn about these sort of issues and then do some more research and find out more. Um, and you know, Nick, one of the funny things about society is now that, you know, people are so busy and attention is so sparse, uh, so quick to turn. My challenge actually would be to, to give, to donate to some cause, uh, give to the homeless and give to, um, you know, some organization, clean water, whatever it may be, give some to some organization, because the reality is Nick, today's day and age, people engage with their wallet and their mind ends up following. Um, and so, because there's so many different competing interests, my, my challenge would be to give, and it doesn't have to be a huge donation, but find out somewhere that you care about something and give to that, and then find out where that sort of takes you um, as you get drawn in more uh, to engaging with that issue. Yeah, that's super great advice because money controls so much of who we are and what we do. It just inevitably does. And we have to work really hard to make sure that's not the case. And so when we give, like you said, it doesn't have to be a huge amount, but anywhere we put our money, we're saying, I validate what's going on here. I approve what's going on here. And like you said, our mind, our heart, our desires, our passions will follow, right? They'll figure out, do I want to keep doing this? What's going on here? But it's that giving a little bit of our, for lack of a better term, hard-earned cash 
to something that we either give a damn about or think we give a damn about or want to give a damn about right that it becomes something that we actually like think about right um and i think your you, the piece of advice you gave right before that was super huge and it's so funny how things kind of line up i just uh, two hours ago uh finished a podcast conversation with uh grace and lauren who run songs against slavery a nonprofit here in uh nashville and one of their pieces of advice was exactly what you just said like become a student don't act like you know it all. There's so much to learn. Even they said it seven years into what we're doing, we're still students. And I'm sure you would say that. And Gary, who started IJM, like he would say that. And so many others, like we never, we're never not students, right? There are always ways for us to learn. The quickest way for us to destroy ourselves and any opportunities that we have in our future is to act like we know what's going on and to not take that that student mentality on where we're always learning uh, about the things that we're passionate about so that we can be better informed, we can work better, we can contribute better to, you know, making that problem, that issue go away. Absolutely. Yeah. Super, super helpful. Let's talk about our, you and I both recently, we're kind of switching gears a little bit. You and I both recently gave TEDx talks, which is cool. That's right. I think we both found out more or less around the same time that we were going to be giving them. Yeah. Uh, I gave a TEDx talk in September in Chicago and you gave yours in December, right? It was actually in October. October. Oh yeah. What am I talking about? I just it took a it took a while for it to come out. Uh, <laughs> tell me about your experience. I'll, I'll share a little bit about mine. But I would love. I'm sure your talk was a little bit along the lines of the things we've been talking about. So give us yes. some context there. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So um, I got the opportunity to give a, a TEDx talk in New Jersey, uh, in Cape May, New Jersey, and um, it was actually a pretty pretty awesome event. Wycliffe Jean was one of the speakers. Um, Daryl Davis, who is the rhythm and blues singer who uh, befriends the KKK. So he was a fascinating talk. Wow. Yeah. It w- you know, we just had a whole bunch of uh, very interesting people, uh, but it was just a great event and it was a great opportunity and a great venue. The TEDx talk that I, I gave is entitled Slavery Still Exists. Here's how to end it. Um, and it really goes to what we were talking about before about the idea of arresting the slave owner. And if for slavery to end, you have to arrest the slave owner. You can't just rescue the slave. And so trying to reframe the understanding of, of anti-slavery work in countries, but, but also charity work in countries. So, you know, one of the things that I say there is good organizations will do the work that the government is unable to do, but great organizations will work with the government to get them to do it themselves. Because ultimately, the way that relief and the way that mercy and the way that justice will scale is if we build up the government to be able to do it themselves. Um, and so ultimately, we're not just there to arrest slave owners, to work with the police to arrest slave owners. We're there to actually build up the police for them to arrest the slave owners themselves. And when that happens, then we can actually move our resources to other places and other uh, you know, issues because we were building up the government. So your talk went well. I watched the talk. Hey, everybody that's listening, go to YouTube, TEDx, Richard Lee, Kate May. It'll come up. You should go watch it. So the, the talk was super great. Um, it's actually fun to get some more context about like who else was speaking there. It seems like it was a really, really great lineup and event. But how was the experience for you even preparing for that and getting ready and even the po- like now that you're a TEDx alum, like <laughs> h- how has the whole experience been for you? Well, I mean, I, I don't know how it was for you, but 
for me, I, I'm up in front of people and I'm speaking all the time. And so it's, I don't typically get nervous when I get up in front of and talk in front of people because I'm a little bit of a strange in that way, but also because I had a lot of experience preaching and, and being a pastor. Um, but I did get a little nervous because you're off script. And, you know, for me, I was trying to be very precise with my language. And so I wanted to, you know, remember certain phrases in a particular way. Um, and so there was a little bit of anxiety there. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I'm very happy with how it came out. You know, my wife and I did have a conversation about what I was going to wear. So, you know, like, <laughs> and that typically doesn't happen when you go out and speak. And so you just recognize that the, you know, things are, the, the stakes are a little bit higher. Uh, for TEDx. I don't know. How was it? How was it for you? What was your experience? Yeah. I mean, I like you in different ways, obviously, but I've done a lot of public speaking, you know, over the last decade or two and I don't get nervous. Like I, I enjoy it. I feel very comfortable and, and I don't know how you are even with the talks that you give on a normal basis, but I usually like, I know where I want to go. And so I'll take, you know, maybe like a note card or two up there, or just like a couple words that I want to remember that will prompt thoughts and ideas or maybe a quote or something, but I don't usually, yeah, I don't have this like scripted out thing. And, you know, with Ted, they want you to, you know, you work on it for, you know, weeks and months and they have a coach and yeah, you get it pretty precise. And so that actually like mess with me for a little bit. I, at the rehearsal the night before, I pretty much bombed it. I, there's no other way around it. I wasn't <laughs> the only, I wasn't the only one, but the coach there was amazing. She didn't, you know, here we are about to put on this, you know, big TEDx event. She wasn't nervous at all. She took me out to the hallway. She kind of like, you know, calmed me down. And she says, I'm not worried about you at all because your your problem is only that you've over-rehearsed. Like, she, you know, I've been listening to you this talk for weeks. You like give it and get it better and get it better and get it better. So your problem is that you know it too well. You just need to chill out. Like, she's like, you just need to chill the hell out. And her advice was, it was so funny. You know, we're less than 24 hours away from this event. Um, I was the last talk. So kind of, you know, there's no like keynote talk, but they put me last. They wanted me to wrap up the event. Right. And she said, don't rehearse your talk anymore. N no more, none. She said, I want you to, what are your favorite things to do? And I said, well, I like to listen to classical music and uh, drink coffee, smoke my pipe. That's like my, that's like my chill, like rest thing. And she said, do that literally from now until tomorrow, like do as much of that as you want. And so I did, I just chilled and didn't think about my talk anymore. And I gave the talk, um, then, you know, the next day, uh, and you know, pretty well, you know, it wasn't oh, perfect, but great. But so it was just a weird transition from like the night before when I was like, oh, I really, you know, part of me, this like weird part inside of me was like, I failed. Let's just go home. Let's just, I'm just not even going to do it. And obviously I wasn't going to follow through with that, but that's what my body was telling. My brain was right. telling me to do that. Right. So it was a beautiful experience. I just, you know, it's such a fun, I love the whole Ted concept and team and idea. I've watched hundreds of Ted talks. Uh, not a week, sometimes not a day, but especially not a week goes by where I don't watch a TED talk and learn. So to be part of that like community is super rad. I, I'm I, I feel very blessed and honored. Yeah, everyone listening should just go to uh, YouTube <laughs> and go. What's the title of your talk? Uh, the power of less. It's, the power of uh, less. Yeah, my journey toward minimalism and essentialism. Uh, 
just a fun, yeah, fun talk. I I talk about weird experiments that I've engaged in, and yeah, hopefully, I mean, it seems like it's helping people. I know yours will as well. So that, yeah, I just wanted to even on air just like talk about that for a minute. The, the whole TEDx experience for both. Maybe we'll get to do another one. I don't know. I would love to. Yeah. Um, that was the weird thing is like after the event was over, like for two hours, people lined up to talk with me. It was super fun. They had after party on the roof of the rooftop of this like cool building in Chicago. And, um, as we were driving home that night after this whole, like, I don't know if I'll be able to do it. And then I did it and it was crazy. I was like, I want to do one right away. It's kind of like, uh, I have a lot of tattoos and it's kind of like getting a tattoo where in the middle of the tattoo, you're in the middle of like an eight hour session. Right. And you've dropped hundreds of dollars, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for this person <laughs> to inflict pain upon you for eight hours in a day. And you get done, you go home and it starts to heal and you're like, oh, I, it's time for another one. So it felt, <laughs> it felt very much like the tattoo experience where I was like, I'm ready to do this again. Yeah, it, it really is something. It's, it's a great experience. I love it. I love it. Um, as we begin to, you know, I want to honor your time and the listener's time. As we begin to wrap up here, uh, I have one kind of big question coming up here. But before that, I wanted to take just a quick moment to honor you and the work that you're doing. I know that you're not doing it for, you know, for honor and for accolades, but I'm really thrilled for the work that you're doing and the work that IJM is doing. And you're obviously a contributor to what IJM is doing and does. And obviously sex trafficking, human trafficking is something that we want to see eradicated from the face of the planet, something that should never be. And yet it's here in the, in, to the tune of tens of millions of people. It can't be easy. I don't expect that working in this you know, hearing the stories and seeing what's going on, there's there's a hopeful side to it, right? When you see the work being done in 1,300 plus, uh, you know, convictions, that's all amazing. But the, I'm sure part of it is also super hard to know the kinds of pain and agony and anguish and just like turmoil that the people that you're trying to rescue go through. And so I just want to honor the work you're doing, the work that you are leading people to do. Um, I want to encourage you in the work that you're doing to encourage you to keep going. Me as the host of Let's Give a Damn and we as Let's Give a Damn family are here cheering you on uh, and very hopeful for what's to come both in your life and in the iJam organization. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. That does, that means a lot because uh, it's not always easy. Uh, the stories that you hear are not always pleasant, but there is hope um, in the work that we do because we actually believe that this is uh, I think, as I mentioned, um, the most compelling work and with some of the most compelling people and we do it in a compelling way. So absolutely. I love it. Okay. Last big question before we wrap up here someday, Richard, you are going to die. Hopefully it is many, many years from now. Um, I hope you live, you know, a long, meaningful, fulfilled life with your family and serving in different ways and building great stuff. But it's inevitable that you and I will die someday. And so someday you're going to die. Um, hypothetically, in this hypothetical scenario, I'm giving your eulogy, uh, all the people that you've been able to influence and serve and lead, your family, your colleagues, uh, people that have been rescued from human trafficking, they're all there in this big room to honor and mourn your life. Uh, and again, in this hypothetical scenario, I'm giving your eulogy. In a few sentences, what do you hope that I will say about you, your life, your legacy on that day? Wow. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I think first of all, I just hope that you call me good looking again. 100%. That'll be first and foremost. <laughs> the, the good looking Richard Lee. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, you know, I would say I think that 
what I would want to be said of me is that he spent his life helping people. Yeah. And friends, family, um, strangers, people within the organization, people that, that, that IJM serves, uh, you know, my, my hope and my prayer is that that would be, that would be true of everybody there. That's what it's all about, right? At the end of the day is helping people. But, you know, we just celebrated and honored Martin Luther King as we do every year. And as I hope we'll do for the rest of, you know, eternity for the rest of time. And, you know, one of my favorite takeaways and quotes from him is he says, life's most persistent, urgent question is, what are you doing for others? And for a guy like that, that he had the breadth and the width and the depth of everything that he knows about and did. And I mean, just, just a very incredible man, right? For him to boil everything down to life's most persistent, urgent question is, what are you doing for others? That is meaningful. I'll never forget that because A, I believe it. I've seen that to be true. And B, again, just like all the sermons he gave, all the talks he gave, all the, everything that he did and I ever said, and then he kind of sums it up with, here's the most persistent question. It's not anything else I've ever said. It's this right here. And it has to do with helping people. It reminds me, my, my favorite quote is when he talks about the good, the parable of the Good Samaritan in, in the Bible. And he says, the question isn't what will happen to me if I help him. The question is what will happen to him if I don't. Mm, so good. That, that always hits me. And I, I was like, oh, I can't think about myself. It's not yeah, about me. Yeah, 100%. I love that. So Nick, I, I got to ask you, what's, yeah. if I give your eulogy, what am I saying about you? Oh boy, you're the first person that's ever done that. I don't like that you just did that on me, but um, no, but I, I I appreciate the turning the table on me. I, I should have a good answer for this, right? Because I ask it all the time and I do think about death all the time. I think it's foolish not to, as I say in my talk and I share more of the context there. But I, I hope that you will say over my life that he loved others. And that's gonna mean a lot of things, right? Uh, hopefully at that point, I will have, you know, according to my current desires and what I hope to see in the future, um, I will have started companies that helped so many people, that employed so many people, that I was an integral part in you know, seeing some of the world's biggest hardships eradicated. Like That's gonna entail a lot of things, but I want it to be that he loved others. And you know, as a Christian myself, the great commands are to love God and love, love others. And I think both of those, they're obviously separate commands, but they're joined together as well. And so in that, in the love others is that my faith is, you know, played out all throughout my life. So yeah, I mean, obviously they'll say other things and I hope it's a big party and it's a fun time for everybody thinking about my life. But yeah, I want it to be summed up as he loved others. He did it super well that, that his work, his family, his, um, how he made money, how he spent money, where he went, what he did, how he did it to love others well. That's great. Thanks for asking me that. Yeah, You're the first person that's ever done that in <laughs> 50 interviews or so. I wasn't ready for that. But now I felt for a second what other people feel like when I asked them that. Right. Let it be known. This show is unscripted. That's, it is very unscripted. I. Some people ask me like, do I... And I, so I try to balance it because I think doing research is super good as well. And I have other podcasts that I listen to where it's not scripted as much as it is like they do tons of research. I do that with some people. But literally, I have seven words typed out in the notes for this. Like, it's just, that's it. I wanted to, good you know, looking. something, something, yeah, that's right. Good looking, good looking, good looking, good. <laughs> and I just stopped. I got cut off. But, you know, I, I wanted to really feel like a conversation. And it, I wouldn't script a conversation I'm having with you, you know, over coffee or a beer or whatever. I wanted to, like, kind of flow. So, you know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But 
before we leave, we're going to wrap up here. What do you want people to go check out? This could be your social media, iJam social media, something you have coming up. Like what, this is your time to plug who you are and what you do. Social media, you can find me on social media. Everybody has Google, you can search me. I I will say the one thing that I'm so excited about coming up this year is um, iJam is doing our 20th anniversary gathering uh, conference. um, And it's going to be in September, September 28th and 29th of this year. And it's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be just such a fun time. Uh, Louis Giglio will be there. uh, Mark Laverton, uh, Andy Crouch. If those names mean anything to you, then you know, you really should be there. It's going to be, it's going to be such a great time just to celebrate, to celebrate and to really also to pray for the work that we're doing just to see, um, and invite God back into the work that we're doing. And so September 28 and 29 in Dallas, um, go to IJM.org slash liberate, uh, which is the name of the conference. And I, I saw that there's early bird tickets right now and they're really cheap for, for as far as conferences go. So yeah, everybody check it out. I will be there one way or the other doing one thing or the other. I will be there. Um, so if you want to join me and Richard and everybody else, it'll be a really fun time. I'm just so excited about it already. Cool. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining me. This was super fun, super enlightening. I learned from you. I'm excited about the work you're doing and, um, you know, keep going. And uh, I hope we can, you know, have a conversation in person soon. Yes. Thank you, Nick. And likewise, keep it up. Thanks for joining Richard and me today, friends. What an amazing human. You can find links, resources, and show notes for this conversation and all the others. Plus, you can find ways to join in on what we're doing by going right now to shownotes.letsgiveadam.com. That's shownotes.letsgiveadam.com. You know, so many people fall short, including myself so many times, of giving a damn because it's hard, because there are too many obstacles, because it isn't working the way we thought it would, and because we're frankly not okay with failure most of the times. I wanna leave you with a quote that I hope will encourage and help you overcome some of the obstacles you may be facing today in your journey toward giving more dams. And this quote is by the ever-inspiring Ryan Holiday. On the path to successful action, we will fail possibly many times, and that's okay. It can be a good thing even. Action and failure are two sides of the same coin. One doesn't come without the other. What breaks this critical connection down is when people stop acting because they've taken failure the wrong way. Important words, my friends. Go back 30 seconds, listen to that again, take it to heart, and act on it this week. I love you all. Thank you for joining me. Until next time, my friends, keep giving so many dance. Bye for now. Bye for now.